We are in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning, starting out in Hebrews 11. So if you have your scriptures, please turn there. And as you're turning there, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will get started enjoying the scriptures together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity and the privilege and the honor that we are able to, by your spirit, be here this morning and receive your word and be reminded again of um, our need for you, your gracious and mighty love for us, uh, your redemption of our souls. And uh, Lord, I pray you help us as we grapple with the truths found in this text that we will be reminded of a correct picture, a true picture of what is faith. And uh, Lord, I pray you help us to at the same time examine ourselves to see if we are people of the faith. And uh, so Lord, I pray that your spirit will bear witness with us and help us to see clearly, uh, protect us from error. And um, Lord, I pray that your spirit will be mighty in us, changing us and bringing us to worship you. In your name I pray, amen. So we've come to Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11, out of all of the book of Hebrews, is probably uh, the most famous. Um, it's been called a variety of things. Uh, it's obviously been called the faith chapter, because that's what it's all about. Um, and it has been called also, uh, uh, in, for example, Thompson's, uh, uh, old ta- his Thompson's Bible, uh, which he didn't write his own Bible, but all the notes in it were by Thompson. Uh, he called it God's trophy case. I, I've come to the point where I reject that term. It's not God's tr- trophy case. Um, it is something radically different from that. Um, be that as it may, there are a variety of terms and perspectives on it. But one of the things I find very interesting about the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the f- what is called the faith chapter, is that it has seldom been examined in its context. It has seldom been placed in its context. And when it's placed in its context, it becomes a very potent chapter. We're not going to go through the whole chapter today. We're only going to spend our time in the first three verses. But I think it is a, a, a crucial um, chapter of teaching followed by chapter 12 with very strong exhortation. You will find no exhortation in chapter 11. Uh, probably the closest you'll get is close to the end of an exhortation. What more shall we say? But it's not really an exhortation. Uh, so it's basically teaching, explaining what faith, faith is, and then an exhortation after. So we, we came out of chapter 10 with an exhortation. We're going to leave chapter 11 in a few weeks into an exhortation. In the middle of it, we have this teaching about what faith is. Why is that teaching so important? Because one of the things that, that the writer of Hebrews is trying to do very strongly is to challenge in an exhortational type of way the receiver of this letter challenge them to examine themselves to see if they're of the faith. That's the point. If you remember, if we think our way through the book of Hebrews, we have to recognize right away in just about every one of the exhortational passages, there is a very strong, and we've mentioned it many, many times, but the very strong emphasis about the concern of dull hearing, hard hearts, and cold hearts. That's been very clear. It just keeps perking up throughout the book. And the ramifications of that, ultimately, of having dull hearing, uh, cold hearts or hard hearts, I mean, the initial ramification of it, you have to have things taught to you again and again and again. Remember that? It's got to be taught to you again and again and again. But the ultimate ramification of having cold hearts or or hard hearts or 
or dull hearing is ultimately, the argument is in the book of Hebrews, it is the evidence, one of the classic evidences, that someone who may be claiming to be a believer is not a believer. So Hebrews is really trying to dial in on that issue. Are we really believers or are we not? Because he's trying to say this is what a true believer is. This is what a true believer looks like. This is how a true believer thinks. This is how a true believer responds to life. This is how a true believer works through things. Um, this is a, tr a true believer's perspective with all of its ramifications. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to a church or a group of churches where they're full of people who think they're believers, but they may not be. It's not that the writer of Hebrews is sitting on a throne saying, you're not. He's writing to them saying, I'm just not sure about this. And you need to think it through. Unless we think, well, that was just a really bad church. We've recognized, haven't we, as we worked our way through Hebrews, that the churches that are receiving this letter initially are just kind of prototypical of church in general. Does that make sense? Or you have some people that are, that are truly believers, as the Scripture describes, the faithful remnant, and it's showing, it's evident, they're just... They're, they're, they're caught up with Jesus. They're enthralled with Jesus. They're, they're, they're finding in a growing way that Je all things are from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever, amen. And they're actually giving glory to him forever, amen. And not, not perfectly. They struggle, they fail, they repent, and they continue to glorify God and struggle and fail and repent. And they recognize that. They're in the war. They're in the middle of the war. But their heart is hot after Christ. They're enthralled with Jesus. They long for Jesus. And they, they long for him to be, to, uh, to use your term, Andrew, wherever you are, I'm blind, there you are, <laughs> uh, preeminent. That's what they long for, is that Christ will be preeminent, which is a big theme of, of course, the book of Colossians. And so when we think about that, we need to remember that as we work our way into chapter 11. <coughs> because the only way to correctly understand verse or chapter 11 is to recognize it where it sits in the whole flow of things. We've arrived after 10 chapters of very important supremacy of Jesus teachings. Very strong supremacy of Jesus teachings. Very strong exhortations with regard to the lack of interaction with that. And the lack of clinging to that and being enthralled with that Jesus. And we've reached probably the depths at the end of chapter 10 of the exhortations. Which we're going to look at in just a little bit. And chapter 10 then it concludes with talking about faith and the importance of faith. Now, we would all agree with that, wouldn't we? I hope. The importance of faith. We absolutely agree with that. I would be shocked if there was anybody here that would say, no, nah, I don't think faith is all that important. The problem is not a disagreement over whether faith is important in the church today. The problem is something much more subtle than that. And the thing that, that is the problem is answering the question, what is faith? That's the real problem. Everyone would say, yes, absolutely. Faith is important. You can't be a Christian without faith. But when you dial it in and say, well, what is faith? 
and things get real loosey-goosey real quickly. But I want you to know that God did not leave us unaware. He did not leave us clueless when it comes to understanding faith. Quite to the contrary, he's very explicit about what faith is. And it's very important because I've heard people say all sorts of things about faith, that they have faith in this, they have faith in that, they have faith in something else. And I, I find myself regularly saying to people who claim to be believers, um, you can't. That's not faith. Or at least it's not biblical faith. If, if we're going to have faith, our faith has to be informed by what God has revealed. That's it, a big synopsis of what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews. Faith has to be informed and has to have its object being, its focus being what God has revealed. Faith that doesn't fit in that category is false faith, or maybe a better place, faith on something false. That's why it's incumbent on a Christian to know what God says. Because there's pitfalls everywhere. Everywhere. It, there's pitfalls with regard to I have faith in blank, getting to uh, my destination. I have faith in the, in the doctors. I have faith that I'll be healed. I have faith. We go on and on and on. God hasn't said any of those things. Or people will talk about they have faith in Christ that, and they'll talk about things that God has never said in the scriptures about Jesus Christ. So they've created an understanding of God that isn't what the Bible says about God. And that's not real faith. Faith has to have an object, and that, ho that object has to be real. has to be true. has to be accurate. Otherwise, we get into trouble real quick. So let's, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, and let's start working our way through the text. But before we actually work it, I want to read the entire chapter with you. If, if you may follow along. I will read it all to you, and um, and uh, then we're gonna we're gonna only look at verses one through three this morning. But it, I think it's important that we hear the entirety of the of the chapter. So starting in verse one, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it people of old received their com commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out or called to go to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in, a as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not receiving the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in fact, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his son of the sons of Jacob of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, <coughs> made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What more shall I say? For time would fail, fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised, 
since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I always enjoy reading Hebrews chapter 11 because in a very real way, I, I like the way MacArthur puts it, it's like walking through a cemetery and quietly reading the tombstones and being reminded of these great stories that we find in the Old Testament. Some terrible stories, still great. Others great and with a good ending. Um, sometimes it's good to be reminded of those, of those things. But the story ultimately is not about those people that are listed in the book, in the chapter. It's not about those people. The story is about faith. People are merely the illustrations of it to help the reader to understand what faith is, why, so that we can examine ourselves to see if we really have the faith. That's the point of it. If you go back into chapter 10, I want to remind you, if we may start middle of the end of the last message, starting at verse 32, I'm just going to read a little bit. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not grow weary, or I'm sorry, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. So you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a, a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by, notice the next word, faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve the souls. So twice he mentions the word faith, and all the way through from 32 and onward, it clearly, as well as much before, clearly is identifying and referencing faith. When he says, I want you as a reader or hearer of this book to recall the former days, what he's really saying is, I want you to recall when you were vibrant in faith. Does that make sense? I want you to look back in your life and remember when faith was resonating in you. And I said it before, I'll say it again, just by implication, if we can't look back in our life and find time when faith was resonating in us, that we were enthralled with Jesus, captivated by Jesus, captivated by His love, if we can't find that in our life, if we can't recall this is like a major warning. An incredible warning. If we can't recall. Because that means then that we haven't gotten cold. Getting cold means that you were once hot. Having a hard heart implies that you once had a, a soft heart, right? And Having dull hearing currently means that at one point in time you had sharp hearing. So if you look back on your life and you say, I don't remember when it was anything other different than it is right now. And I'm not, 
I'm not one who, I, I mean, I'm honest. I, I, I'm looking at myself and I, I say to myself, yeah, well, I'm kind of cold. I'm certainly enthralled with some things. Not Godwardly. My hearts are my hearts are inflamed by some things. And it's not really godly things. My heart's really soft for some things, but it's not Godward stuff. And when I look backwards, as he says in verse 32, recalling the former days after I was enlightened, if I look back and I'm like, I don't remember a time when my heart was aflame. I don't remember when my ears were highly sensitized to Jesus. Then it's highly likely that we're not believers. And the reason why I say that is because when I look at the scriptures, here's what I see. I see the scriptures telling us repeatedly that when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, He gives us a new life. He takes us from death to life. And in taking us from death to life, He moves us to greater life. That's what the Scriptures tell us. So if I look backwards, I don't see that as is described in chapter 10. Not necessarily the specifics that someone's stealing your property, but those are pictures, illustrations. But if we look back at our life, we don't see that. It, would, it has to lead us to begin to question whether I'm really a believer. Because if I was never enthralled with Jesus, I've got to be honest with you, the Holy Spirit isn't much, is he? And the new life he gives us isn't much, is it? Right? Does that make sense? Now, when I look at the scriptures, I see that, that the Holy Spirit's potent. And the new life he gives us is, is, is a radically new life. Radically different life. Which is why he goes on and says in verse 35, as we talked about last week, therefore you do not grow or throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, implying what? That there is a legitimate confidence. There is a legitimate confidence. With a legitimate great reward. Verse 36, you have a need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And we talked about that last week. So then he goes on and talks about faith. So so. Faith is illustrated 32 through 36, but then in 37, 38, 39, the idea of, or the actual word of faith perks up to the surface. It's all based on faith. Now we know, according to the scriptures, faith is something that God has given us if we are believers. It comes via his grace. It's not something we conjure up ourselves, but it still begs the question, what is faith? What is it? We have need of it. We have need to live by it, verse 38. We have need of it in order to preserve our souls, verse 39. So it sounds like it's something pretty essential, doesn't it? 
Without it, we won't preserve our souls. Without it, we won't live correctly. And without it, God will not have pleasure in us. So it sounds pretty essential to one who claims to be a believer. It sounds like it's very essential. So it begs the question, what is faith? And the answer to that is absolutely essential because if we get it wrong, we'll we can actually deceive ourselves into thinking we're people of faith. But we're not because we don't really have faith in the proper place. Which brings us to chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. We're going to spend some time initially in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's a famous verse. It's one of the verses if you walk into a Christian's home, oftentimes, or at least some of the time, you'll find it up on a wall. It'll be a plaque on a wall. Or it'll be on a poster. You go to a Christian bookstore and you go through the posters and you'll find that probably a quarter of the posters will have that verse on there. And obviously they sell because they wouldn't put them on posters otherwise. It's a pretty famous verse. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, it's important we understand exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying in chapter 11, verse 1. So we're going to break it down into its categories and break it down even further. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I'm going to slow down in that, in that phrase. Now faith is, he's declaring it right off the bat. You want to know what faith is? Well, what I'm about to say is what faith is. And it's almost like he's building brackets. It's not outside of this. If you understand what faith is, it fits into these two statements. If you move outside these two statements, you don't understand faith. You have faith in the wrong things, and they will ultimately disappoint you. So there's the brackets. Faith is, and then he goes on, and he starts out by saying, it is the assurance of things hoped for. Assurance, basically, the idea is that you are assured of something. You look at something as guaranteed. It's, or to use a, a, a narrower term that this term assured comes from, it is something sure. Faith is something sure. What he's saying is faith, true faith, biblical faith, is something you can take to the bank as long as the object is correct. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And what he's saying is, in other words, that the things hoped for are sure. Faith works in that line, as it were. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So faith, in other words, is this. I'm confident. I'm absolutely sure that those things are correct and true and right and will come to fruition or whatever the case may be, depending on what these things are, of course. Now, it's really important that we, we, we grapple with it a little bit further before we get to the last, last part of that phrase. When he says faith is the assurance, it's not some sort of, the picture is not of, for example, um, 
I hire Ken to build a cabinet for me. And he assures me that he will get to it and build it. And he even signs a contract with me. And I take the contract and I put it away and it's there. I don't even really think about it because, you know, I'm confident he'll do it. But it doesn't even cross my mind anymore. That's not the point. When he says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the idea of the assurance here is there, there's the thing hoped for is ultimately valuable. So therefore, where do I live with regard to the assurance? I live in that assurance, right? It's not something I forget because why? I don't forget it. Why? Because it's, what's the last two words? Hope for, right? It's not just, well, Ken's going to build me a cabinet, blah, blah, blah. The cabinet is like the capstone of my life in the scenario. It's the thing I've wanted more than anything else. So if that's true, it's the thing I've wanted more than anything else, then where's my mind? On the cabinet. I know it's silly that I want that more than anything else, but you get the picture, right? My mind is captivated then by the cabinet. And you know what? Ken's going to get really tired real quick. Every time the phone rings, he's going to say, I'll bet that's Steve because he's so fixated on the cabinet, right? That makes sense. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the idea of hope for is what I was just describing. It's ultimate hope, ultimate longing. And if we get it in context, if we fold this idea into the context, what we find is this. The faith he's talking about the object of the faith is the things hoped for. In context, the things hoped for is pretty clear. If we go all the way back to chapter 1, what's the things hoped for? Help me out. Chapter 1 is all about what? The supremacy of Jesus Christ, right? That the things hoped for is what? That Jesus Christ then, therefore, would be what? What? Supreme where? In me, that he would reign supreme in me. I'm just choosing chapter one. That he would reign supreme in me. That that as I move about in my life, one of the things I recognize in the scriptures is the teaching all throughout the scriptures, found even in chapter one, because that's what he's driving towards. He's supreme over these other the superiority of Christ in these other things, the supremacy of Christ over these other things, the implication very strongly, <coughs> as well as the teaching, is that the only thing that's appropriate, the only thing that makes any sense, is that he would therefore be supreme where? In me. So faith, therefore, has an object that would, would be what? That Christ would be supreme in me. That that That... Christ would be my supreme, my supreme focus, my supreme drive, my supreme goal, my supreme 
everything would be Christ. Now I want to remind you that the statement is faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for. It's the assurance that God has revealed this is Christ. I'm just doing I'm working off chapter one. That this is Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So faith is the what again? Assurance that Christ will be what? Supreme in me. And it's the assurance of knowing that God said, if I'm his child, what will happen? He will be. Does that make sense so far? He will be. But one of the qualifiers here is this. I can't say I have faith in Christ if I'm not finding that he's my hope. He's the focus of my hope. He's my longing. He's my joy. He's my satisfaction. If you think it through, it makes complete sense. If my hope is not Christ, my hope is something else or someone else, then if the the result then, let me change that, the result then is that I'm not hoping for this, am I? If my hope is elsewhere, I'm not hoping here. So if I'm not hoping here, if, if this is not what I'm hoping for, then faith has been short-circuited right off the get-go. Right off the bat. My focus, if it's not on, on what is hoped for correctly, then I can have no assurance on that. Can I? not hope for i'm not having assurance of that and it all gets sidetracked because if if this is where a true believer by the power of the holy spirit should be hoping and instead the, this person who claims to be a believer is hoping for this instead you know what he's got going on he's actually lying to himself all the time and saying i have faith and my faith is assurance I'm assured that this is going to work out over here, the thing I'm hoping for. But God said, no, 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 it should be this. And true believers will be this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and in context, it's Jesus. And having Jesus, and fellowship with Jesus, and that Jesus would reign supreme, and that Jesus would captivate my life. And I have faith that God will actually do what he promised. Which is what? Give me this. If we find in our lives, we're wandering through lives, our lives saying, well, I have faith in this, that, or something else, we've got to ask ourselves, what's the object of the faith? And God tells us what it is over and over and over again. It's the, it's the thing hoped for, but there's only one legitimate thing hoped for. Only one. It's Jesus. Because chapter 1 kind of sums up the whole book. That Jesus would be the one supreme. That Jesus would be the one that would reign in my life. That, I hope you guys don't mind because I keep quoting it. That really, in reality, 
that all things in my life will be seen as from him, through him, to him. And that all these things in my life, they come into my life, good things, horrific things, neutral things, pleasurable things, painful things, happy things, discouraging things, whatever they may be, that I will see them for the purpose of bringing glory to God. Because that's why they're there. You see, that faith has an object. And the object is Jesus Christ. And the assurance is that Jesus Christ will be what he says he is in me. Now, that's not the only thing. We oftentimes talk about faith as the idea, and this is true, that the the things hoped for is being in glory, being in heaven, right? I've received Christ as my Savior. He's promised heaven. And certainly that is one aspect of faith, that I'll be in heaven when I die. Certainly that is. <clears throat> but I want to remind you what Jesus said. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? I'll come again to do what? To take you with me so that, so that you what? So that where, where you will be with me for eternity. I mean, that's the summation of it, right? That's what it says. The point of it all is what? So that you'll be with him. Fellowshipping with him. Fellowshipping with him. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You know what that means? If we skin that out a little bit, I'm going to go out of Hebrews for a second. You know, if we skin that out a little bit, you know what that means? It means that I have faith because he declared to me the truth about it. I have faith and I have confidence then, assurance, of things hoped for. Being with him. We would agree with that, right? You know what that means? That means here in this present state where I live today, for me outside of Birdsboro, for me right now here at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, that means right now, according to the Scriptures, if I have that assurance of things hoped for, and I long for that because God promised it, that means according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you know what I'm going through right now? Groaning. This is what the Bible says. It says it's not just in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says it all over the place. That right now, because that's hoped for, right? I have assurance of it because my faith is focused on what God has revealed. But because the evidence that I have this hope for is that right now I find myself pining for it. Groaning for that. Groaning to be set free to fellowship with my Redeemer. That's not primarily groaning to be set free from my sin. Although that's secondary. It's groaning because right now I'm not face to face. That should make sense to us at some level, right? If you really love someone and you're not with them, what happens? You groan. You want to be with them. 
We want to fellowship with them. We want to hang out with them. Does that make sense? And the reason why you groan is because you long for, you look forward to, you hope that you'll be able to be with them again. Well, we have assurance that God is God is revealed that we will be with Him. Woo! But until that day, the Bible says those who are truly saved groan to be with Him. You see, there's ramifications to this this faith thing. There are ramifications. It's the assurance of things hoped for. The hoped for things need to be things revealed by the Scriptures. Because that's what God told us is the object of our faith. Only legitimate object of faith. So the question, before we move off the first phrase, and there's many more things I could say about it. Again, this is just a, a, a very way a primer to make you help, help you think about this text and about the whole chapter. <clears throat> just, just by way of Exhortation, even though there's no exhortations in here, I just need to ask all of us to ask ourselves this really, these really important questions. First, first question is, how confident are you of what God has revealed? How assured are you? How sure are you with regard to what God has said, what God has told us? Are you sure? Now, the second question, a more important question I need to ask you is this. I need to ask myself as well, and that is, this text really, this, this phrase in verse 1 really demands we ask this question. The question simply said is, what are your hopes? It's a really important question. What are your hopes? We have a little one hope to, to escape. What are our hopes? Our dreams, our longings, or to put it a different way, what captures our, our, our heart? That starts to reveal to us whether we're people of faith or not. Now, I know we're prone to wander, right? We're prone to get a hard heart, a cold heart, dull hearing. And that's why this is here, to, so that we will not find ourselves self-deceived into thinking we're people of faith when we're not. Because the ramifications of deception in this passage, if we expand it out, is dramatic. What does he say just a few verses previous to what I just I read out of chapter 10? It's a fearful thing to what? To fall in the hands of what? An angry God. Why would anybody who's receiving the letter to the Hebrews fall into the hands of an angry God? Well, how would that be possible? It's because they'd be deceived into thinking they're something they're not. It, it's because there's a real danger of thinking you're a person of faith when you're not. It's because there's a, a real possibility. And actually, I'd argue it's somewhat common that people think that they're heaven-bound, that they're Christ-bound when they're not. Because their, their hearts are not hearts of faith. They're enthralled with other things. Which is why he said in chapter 10, remember when. And the implication is, or the idea is, remember when you weren't enthralled by other things. Remember when you weren't captivated by other things. Why weren't you? And the reason why is because 
at that time, you saw the truth as revealed by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, and you wanted nothing more than that. That's just what you wanted. That's what you longed for. You hoped for. You prayed for. You dreamed for. And you prayed some more for. And you searched the Scriptures for. And you cried out to God, change me. You cried out to God to open the eyes of your heart so you'd see Him. Remember those days? And the danger is it's lost. The danger is it somehow disappeared for so many people. And they found themselves ruled by other things. They found other things the, hope, the, the focus of their hope. And they had a faith that wasn't faith. Because it wasn't based on what God had said. And so the warning of chapter 10 flows directly in here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. But you're not allowed to come up with whatever you want to hope for. God tells us what it is. And it's not just chapter 1. It's skinned out even further through 10 whole chapters. We just don't have the time to go through them all right now. It's what God has revealed about himself. It's what God has said about Jesus Christ. It's what God has said about our salvation. It's about what God has said what he's about, what he's after. And by the way, if you don't think that's right, just go ahead and read through chapter 11 and, and listen to it in light of that. Listen to chapter 11, all these stories in light of that. He goes on in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of thing, the conviction of things not seen. Now, this gets really strong into the whole convicted or, or convinced perspective. I want you to notice, I'm going to start at the end of this one now, it's things not seen. Or another way to put it, things not realized. Things not realized, things not seen. So faith is the conviction of things not seen. It's not just a hope thing, although biblical hope is a sure thing, but it's a conviction that you are absolutely convinced about the thing you can't see that is unseen. It's in the spiritual realm, in other words. And by the, the idea is, by the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, you find yourselves absolutely convinced about things that are unseen. Not able to be seen. Again, read chapter 11 in all the illustrations. You'll see it come up again and again and again. I don't see heaven today. Anybody see heaven today? No? I didn't think so. I was hopeful nobody would say yes. That'd be kind of concerning. <coughs> I don't see heaven today. But that's just one thing. I don't see Jesus today. Do I? With my eyes? Things unseen? Conviction of things not seen? I don't see Jesus. But by faith, I'm absolutely convinced 
what Jesus said about himself, what God revealed about Jesus, what God revealed about himself, what God revealed about his plan, what God revealed. It's not just about Jesus. I use the word just very carefully there. Um, it is about Jesus, but it's also about what he's revealed about himself. It's also about what he's revealed about his plan. It's, re- it's about what he's revealed about what's best for us. It's about what he's revealed about, about all sorts of things. His perspective on sin, his perspective on righteousness, and on and on. It's about what he's revealed. I don't see it. You ever been in that situation where, where you look at something and you say, I see what God says, but no way. That'll never work out. You ever been there? You know what faith is? Faith is a conviction about things not seen. Let me use an illustration. When I was at, at Word of Life as a student, I had a, a fellow student who came to talk to me. And we sat down and we talked in the dining room. He says, I'm, i I got to talk to you about something. I need to talk to somebody. I said, sure, what's up? He said, um, <coughs> shortly before I came to the Bible Institute, he says, I got saved. And before I got saved, I did something really bad. I said, okay, what'd you do? He said, uh, I broke into a neighbor's house and I stole his guns, and I sold them. I said, okay. He said, that's not the worst part of the story. The worst part of the story is he's a cop. Okay, that's, that's a pretty bad thing, right? You break into a cop's house to steal his guns and sell them on the, on the black market? That's kind of a bad thing. He said, I don't know what to do about that. I, I asked him, I said, well, have you asked God to forgive you? He said, yeah, I have. Have you talked to him yet? He says, are you kidding? No way. I said, well, that's what you need to do. You need to go and talk to him. You need to go and, and yeah, you, need to sit, you need to humble yourself to him and go talk to him and say, you're the one who did it. And ask him to forgive you and maybe even come up with some solutions. That's what you need to do. Biblically, it's really kind of clear. He said, I could never do that. I said, why not? He said, He'll have me arrested. I'll go to jail. I said, maybe, maybe, but maybe it'll be an opportunity to tell him the gospel and he'll be saved. He says, why would anybody ever do that? Nobody would do that. I said, in worst case scenario, you're right. He has you arrested and he throws the book at you and you get convicted and you go to jail for it. I said, and then it turns out that God has a prison ministry for you. That's what he has for you, a prison ministry, where you're going to minister in prison glorifying Christ. He said, no, I'm not doing that. No way. Well, you know, faith is a conviction of things not seen. I don't know what God has in store for you, but I do know this. God tells me something about me and you. I said to him, I do know this. God tells us pretty clearly he's got a plan for our lives. And he also tells me that he's sovereign over our lives. And he also tells me that his plans are good, right? For our good and for his glory. Isn't that correct? So if all that's true, then it seems to me that faith is the conviction of things not seen. You don't know the future. You don't know what God has in store. He has a plan, but you don't know what it is. But you have faith in what? In a God who has said he loves you. And he's going to do what's best for you. And 
best for him, and because you're united with him, it's going to be both. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean it's going to be fun. Maybe very, very, very painful. It may be very difficult. That's what faith is. That's what it is. Faith is a conviction of things not seen. See, what's seen to him was what? I'll go to jail. I'll lose my freedom. I get a record that'll affect me the rest of my life. All that's true, right? But he's caught up in what's seen, not what's not seen. Because what's not seen is what God's going to do, what God's planning, how God's going to glorify himself. You know, I even, I even mentioned to him, I said, you know, it's really interesting. You, would, you join a really good company. Paul was in prison. And what did he say? And his imprisonment was not legit. Yours would be legit. His wasn't even legit. And what did he say? He said in Philippians chapter 1, this thing that's happened to me, it's the best thing that possibly could have happened to me. There's a radical thought. He, he embraced it by faith. And after he got into it, he found, hey, this is the best thing that could have happened to me. Not, not that it was pleasurable. Woo-hoo. Could you hit me on the other side of the back, please? It wasn't pleasurable. Painful. Hard. But what happened was he saw he saw the power of God working ma- amazing, stupendous ways as the gospel spread because of where he was. See, faith is a conviction of things not seen. All focused on Christ and who he is. All focused on what God has in store. It's the conviction, and the idea of faith is the conviction of things not seen is the idea that when he says conviction, it's this thing that is fully embraced. It's not something that's toyed with or played with or used when it's convenient. Faith is something that fully embraces what God has said. Fully. So much so that that becomes the, almost the MO of the person fully embraced. It's not this theoretical, yeah, I believe that, you know, I, I'm convinced. No. It's I'm actually, the idea of conviction is that I'm actually given over to it. It rules me. That's conviction. It, it rules me. It dominates me. It makes my feet move. It makes my mouth work. It makes my eyes turn. It, it it, it runs in my mind all the time. That's what a conviction is. I find that the stuff of my life, as they enter my, it just prompts my conviction to bubble back up to the surface again. I just find that all things in my life just continue to reveal my conviction, my assurance. My assurance is in Him. faith. Faith is not something that's wielded when convenient or when it works well. Faith is something that is a conviction and the implication being in the midst of what? In context, your stuff being stolen. 
That's what it says. Chapter 10. Faith is an assurance of things hoped for. And obviously in chapter 10, the assurance of things hoped for is not that your property won't get stolen. Does that make sense? Because you find that you have another property that is what? Eternal and in a whole different league of value and quality. And so when your stuff gets stolen, you look at it and say, are you kidding? I got a better and lasting possession. Oh, my house burned down. I got a better house. Oh, my car was totaled. I got a better, not car, but I got a better property. And a much more long-lasting property. That's why the scriptures say, don't, don't pursue after the things that moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal because there's something far better. And by faith, I don't see it. By faith, I pursue it. By faith, I'm assured. Faith is, is, is the conviction of those things not seen. And that's in context, chapter 10 makes it really clear. When we have faith in God, we look at things very differently. Because we have a better and lasting possession. Let me go into verse 2. 2 and 3 are illustrations, generally speaking. It's like a preamble to the rest of the, of the chapter. Verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By what? By faith the people of old received their commendation. Now commendation does not mean what you think it means. Commendation does not mean, good job, here's a raise, here's an extra benefit for you. That's not what it means. When it says, for by it, that is by faith, people receive their commendation, commendation is something that changes everything in the scriptures. By faith, Abram, what, what happened? It was counted to him as righteousness. That's the commendation. The commendation is righteousness versus, in contrast, what? If it's not righteousness, it's unrighteousness. You see, up to that point in time, Abram was unrighteous. But chapter 12 and chapter 15 of Genesis, we find out that God gave him faith to believe and it was accounted unto him as righteousness that's his commendation before the sacrifice of jesus christ the perfect lamb of god even took place it's going to be another 1800 or so years until the sacrifice takes place at that point in time and it was counted unto him as righteousness he no longer was outside the family of god he is now in the family of God. He's inside the family of God by faith. That's a commendation. You see, this commendation isn't a good job. This commendation is condemned to blessed. This, commend, this commendation is, is from being in the enemy of God to being the friend of God. It is from being in the kingdom of darkness to being in the kingdom of light. The commendation is from being in, the, in, in Satan's family to being in God's family. The men of old received their commendation 
by faith. Faith was radically changing these people. And you know it's the case, right? I, mean, I want to go back to Abraham because he's going to go to Abraham later on. He received his commendation. I want you to think about his, his demonstration of faith. His faith was dramatic. Here it is. God breaks through time and space and speaks to Abram. Chapter 12. He's got a home. He's got family. He's got relatives. He's got friends. He's got a field. He's raising crops. He's got a life. He's a moon worshiper. And God breaks through time and space and says, Abram, I need you to do something. I need you to leave the land where you are. Leave your family. Leave your friends. Leave everything you know. And go to a land that I will show you. Just walk by faith. And the scriptures say that he got up and walked. Can I just ask you a quick question? Does that sound like change? Does that sound like they became a different person? Does that sound like, more specifically, does that sound like he has a different hope? A little bit? He had a hope before then, Genesis chapter 11, he, and before, he had other hopes, didn't he? Raise crops, raise cattle, get as fat as possible, take in the market, sell them, get money, buy more farms, whatever the case may be. Have lots of family, good friends, hang out, have parties, and enjoy life. And then God broke through, and something changed. Didn't it? Something changed. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And certainly Abram didn't see it. He said, I'll show you. Just start walking. Or to go to the New Testament. Saul's heading up to Damascus. As he's walking his way up to Damascus, to do what? To kill and persecute Christians. He's walking his way up to Damascus, and a light shines out of heaven, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He had hopes, didn't he? He had dreams, he had hopes, and they were captivating him. They were absolutely consuming him. And then he met Jesus. He was given faith to believe. And what happened with his faith? What, was, what, what changed? The easy answer is everything. Everything. Because he leaves that spot blind and he goes to someone's house and receives back his eyesight and right away what does he do? He goes to the temple and he does what? He preaches Christ and him crucified. Really? Faith is the evidence of things. I'm sorry, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And he's after it. Everything changes. Faith. That's what faith does. That's what faith is. And with it or by it, faith, what happens? What does it say again in chapter, chapter 11, verse 2? For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Again, commendation is that idea of death to life. 
from unrighteousness to righteousness, from being outside of the family of God to being in the family of God. It's all by faith. And then verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that whatever is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He simply said, by faith, we embrace what God says about things that we cannot see. By faith, I believe what God said about the creation of the world. And he's going to the creation of the world because it's the very first thing. By faith, we believe what God said about the creation of the world, implication being, I didn't see it. You weren't there. I wasn't there. But what God said, by faith, I believe it because God declared it. Implication, all the rest of the stuff that I can't, that I can't see either, also same thing. I can't see it because it's unseen. By faith, God did it. God said it. I believe it. And again, it is not just I believe it, I said it, move along. It is by its very nature transformative because of that word hope for. It captivates. The object of faith as a result captivates. So all that to be said, we're going to go through chapter 11, verse 3 and following in the coming weeks. The challenge of chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 is this. There's much more we could say about that, but it is this. It is incumbent upon the readers and hearers of this text to ask ourselves, very importantly, what does my faith look like? What's the object of my faith? What does it look like? What's the basis for my faith? And most importantly, is it really faith? Is it really faith? And what I mean by that is, if it's really faith, according to the scriptures, it captivates my heart. We see it everywhere illustrated. We see it taught here. If it's really faith, the object of the faith captivate my heart. The object of, of my faith rules me. It controls me. It guides me. It inevitably brings me to true worship. So do I really have faith? That's the question. How cold are, is my heart? How hard is my heart? How dull is my hearing? Is this what really captivates me? Rules me. Controls me. You know, when Paul says the love of Christ controls me, you know what that's a statement of? A statement of faith. It's a dramatic statement of faith. It's, it, he's saying what I believe about God one aspect of it is his love that controls me. It, it, it is the modus operandi of my, of my life and how I function. It's not just this esoteric idea. It actually rules and controls me. That's what faith does. So the challenge for all of us as we, as we listen to Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 is, what is my faith? What's the object of my faith? And is it really faith? Does it rule me? Does it control me? Does it move me? Does it, does it dominate my life?
or do I have other hope? Now, if you, if, if you go through this text and you say, yeah, Steve, I hear you, but, but that, yeah, that's not even on my radar screen. I mean, I can't even see that from where I'm at. You know what, the, what, what, what is needed? What's needed is a cry out to God in faith. <laughs> there we are, back to it again, aren't we? A cry out to God in faith. A cry out for forgiveness. A cry out to, to change your heart, to change your ears. And a cry out to God to help you to seek him while he may be found. You know, Hebrews said earlier, he said, you know, we've, we've had enough time for sin. That's what he says. If I may sum it up. And now it's time to pursue. It's time to learn. It's a time to see with eyes of faith. It's time to, to, to learn from, to sit at the feet of Jesus and to gather understanding, to develop our knowledge of Jesus Christ and to fellowship with the God of the Scriptures. To once again taste and see that he's good. To once again to drink from the, from the spring of living water. And keep on drinking. That's the call. That's it. And by the way, even that is God's mercy, isn't it? That God would, that God would even allow us to come back to the well. The, the spring. That God would still allow us to sit at the table. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? And to feast. It's stunning. But that's the call. Because our God is a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He's a long-suffering God. But he calls for us to remember and to return. So let us do that. Let us remember and return. Shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to be careful by your spirit to look and examine, to see, as Paul said, if we're of the faith. Help us to <coughs> consider. I pray that you will help us to be challenged as we examine ourselves. Give us clarity. to see if we are people of faith. More than anything else, I pray you'll help us from presuming that we are. Protect us from presuming that everything's okay. Open our eyes to see. And Lord, I pray that as a result, you will be glorified and that we will find joy in you like we never, ever imagined possible. And we ask that you do that for your glory. In your name I pray, amen.